0: All right, this is Kevin Bossemeyer, and you're listening to UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI Professor Simon Penny. Professor Penny has been at UCI since 2001 and currently teaches in the Department of Studio Art at UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts. Simon's expertise is a cross-section of robotics, informatics, philosophy, and art, his talents are very apparent to those of us at KUCI because over the last several years we have been watching him build a remarkable arc, I, I mean 30-foot boat, just outside KUCI Studios here on campus. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Kevin. We'd love to hear all about the boat that you're building. Can you please describe for those of us who don't know anything about boats what it is you're doing? We, we want to hear all about it.
1: Yeah, happy to. The project is called the Orthogonal Project. And um, there's a web page on my website, Simonpenny.net slash orthogonal. It's a little bit of a bit out of date. So how do you
0: spell um, orthogon- orthogonal yeah.
1: orthogonal? O R T H O G O N A L. orthogonal. Orthogonal means at right angles to. That's a name I chose because the design strategy and the general approach is really at right angles to Western naval architecture. So the boat is based on the several thousand year traditions of Micronesian ocean voyaging craft. The Micronesian Peoples who populated the entire Pacific, that is a third of the planet, did so with a naval architecture and a system of navigation which was totally unique, very unlike Western sailboat design, very unlike Western cartography. And they did it with obviously completely sustainable materials that they found on the islands they were living on. It's a technique, a tradition of enormous precision, both in the building of the craft and the navigational techniques. They were able to travel hundreds or thousands of miles over open water without instruments or maps. And this tradition was common to all of the island peoples of the entire Pacific. Unfortunately, Western colonists have essentially exterminated that tradition of knowledge in all but a very few of the most isolated, most impoverished communities. Now, many of your listeners will have seen the Disney film Moana. It's interesting to know that the boats that are in that movie are not Hawaiian boats. They are Micronesian boats. And the Hawaiians, along with the Tahitians and many of the more intensively settled island nations, have completely lost their traditional seafaring and navigation capabilities. And there is in fact a very interesting history to what we call the Hawaiian Renaissance, which resulted in the extraordinary voyage of the Hokulea, a reconstructed Hawaiian catamaran which sailed in the 1970s from Hawaii to Tahiti and back without instruments and without maps. This really started a growing local and global awareness of the value and importance of these traditions. But, of course, Hokulea was a boat built in fiberglass, modeled on essentially archaeological remains of the traditional Hawaiian craft because the Hawaiians had completely lost their tradition. And they had to import a master navigator from a tiny atoll in Micronesia called Satawal, in order to teach them a version of the traditions that they had once had, but had long lost. And his name was Mao Pialug. And Mao Pialug went to Hawaii and taught some young Hawaiians a version of his particular tradition of Micronesian navigation. And that's how we get the Hokulea, which recently circumnavigated the world in the interests of sustainability and climate change awareness and a rebirth of awareness of these traditions all over the Pacific and in other places around the world. So that's one aspect of the project. Another aspect of the project, as I've alluded to, is questions of climate change and sustainability, which are deeply affecting these communities. So two island nations now that are essentially uninhabitable, the nation of Kiribati has had to buy real estate from Fiji because they'll essentially be a nation, a refugee nation. They can't inhabit their islands, not because they're completely underwater, but because it only takes two storm surge events in a year to salinate the aquifer of a low-lying island, and therefore agriculture and human habitation is impossible. So that's what's happening all over the Pacific. In addition, the communities in the Pacific are stuck with transport systems, which in many cases are still being used from the Second World War, old diesel-burning tramp steamers and repurposed ships, which are rapidly coming to the end of their life. And of course, diesel oil is not only highly polluting, but it is also very, very expensive when you have to drag it across the ocean and move it from big boats to small boats to tiny boats to get it out to these places where people actually need to use it. And is the case in many places, in island communities, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific and other places, people will often spend ten times their rent just to go fishing to catch food for their families. So that's an economically unsustainable model. The tragedy is that these people had a flourishing indigenous sustainable seafaring and navigation tradition. They built boats from materials they found on their islands and they could go fishing with the power of the wind, usually faster than an outboard driven fiberglass boat would go and it cost them nothing. And when something breaks, they don't have to buy a part from China. They just make a new piece of coconut senate cord or seal it up with some breadfruit sap sealant ore, and so on. So there's a strong argument, both in terms of cultural survival and in terms of simple simple survival, to reestablish these kind of sustainable seafaring practices that were the property of these communities for thousands of years. And in fact, they identify as sea people. You know, they are not identify not so much as land people, but as sea people in many cases. On the bigger islands, not so much. And this is one of the reasons why the Hawaiians kind of lost their seafaring tradition, because Hawaii is a pretty nice place. You don't have to go other places once you get there. So there's a challenge to help these communities with a modality of transport and trade and fishing that they can afford that and that's sustainable. And in some quarters, this is called the last mile problem. So in Fiji, for instance, which is a nation of 125 inhabited islands, there's an island quite close to the main island on which the capital city is, which is very, very verdant with very fertile soils and produces great produce. Unfortunately, the only deep water harbour is on the other side of the island, so that farmers need to first hire a refrigerated truck to get their goods around the island and then put them on a diesel-powered boat in the only deepwater harbour to have them shipped to the market, which is only a couple of hundred miles away. Well, by that time, the money they've spent on those transport modalities has essentially taken all the profit they might make from selling their produce. However, if they had a sailboat, they could sail directly from their township overnight to the market, sell their goods, bring things home, and it wouldn't cost them a cent. So there's very good sense in, in solving this last mile transport problem. And one, one of the interesting things that I've realised is that the history of Western maritime conquest is very connected with the, with the need for deep water harbours. Why was Pearl Harbour so strategic? It's the only deep water harbour in the Hawaiian archipelago. It's the only harbour where deep ships can find shelter from storms. Now, the islander tradition of sailing does not require deep water harbours because the boats are not deep. They can sail over a reef at high tide across a shallow lagoon and be pulled up on the beach. So the pattern of settlement of the Pacific peoples is very different from the way Westerners settled the Pacific. And there's a lot of sense in the idea of a shallow-draft vessel in many of these places, many of these island communities. It means you don't have to build harbours. One of the liabilities of harbours with climate change and sea level rise is once again those things are fixed in concrete at a particular level and it doesn't take too many storm surge events to make an entire harbour complex unusable or not feasible to repair. One of the less obvious effects of climate change will be the demise of commercial harbours of the sort that we know, particularly in places where the the economy of those places is marginal. But it may well happen in LA too. Storm surges washing out across the vast flat areas of land where the shipping containers are parked will ruin all the goods in the bottom layer of shipping containers and we will see how long it is before deep infrastructural repair has mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. take place. So that's background in a number of different ways for the project. And so the project is a trying to think through a hybridization of using modern materials but using the dynamics of the traditional craft to come up with a fast sailing transport vessel that could be used for fishing or for travel between islands, bringing medical supplies, taking kids to school, those sorts of things, which of course is absolutely crucial. And I'm not persuaded that my design is going to be successful. It's very experimental. There are aspects of it that have never been tested and it remains to be seen when we launched the boat, which parts break, which parts don't work, in what kinds of conditions it performs well, and in what kinds of conditions it doesn't perform well. So even though I've been building it now for four years, I fully anticipate a couple of years of sailing and repairing and testing and tweaking to find out if the idea is
0: viable. In case you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations, I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is art and technology professor, Simon Penny. Professor Penny and volunteer students have been building a 30-foot, dual-hull, Polynesian-type sailing vessel just outside the KUCI studios and adjacent to the science library for over four years. Once completed, they will test the viability of the craft to be used in this age of rising sea levels, affected harbors, and climate change. Now back to the interview. I see you here frequently. How much of your time is spent working on the boat?
1: I've invested, currently I'm investing a day and a half a week. I have a full-time teaching job, of course, and other things to do. But that would be about what I've invested fairly constantly through the school years and through summers for most of the last four years. And I've run the project as what is called on campus a multidisciplinary design project. The uh, university, through the office of the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, CalIT2, and Europe the Undergraduate Research Opportunities Programme, I think it is, UROP, uh, they got together and said they would support initiatives by faculty to engage students in interdisciplinary design projects. and would provide a small budget to uh, those projects. So essentially all of the funding for the project has been from that program. It received two sequential grants of about $3,500 a year. The boat has been built enormously cheaply with student help, often from recycled materials, and certainly very careful shopping for the best deals. And we make virtually all of the components from the ground up out of raw stock, be it plywood, epoxy, fiberglass, stainless steel, aluminum, and various other
0: materials. So you will use materials like fiberglass and so forth that I don't think you traditionally think of ancient mariners using. Sure. Well, the,
1: you know, a traditional Micronesian voyaging canoe would take an entire village a year to build. And you would have to fell a very large tree in the forest because the basic part of the Hull, was a dugout keel section, takes a substantial amount of resources. In many cases, those resources are simply no longer available because of logging and that sort of thing for many of these communities. There were trade networks around the Pacific so that places where these great trees could be sought became boat building centers for other communities. One of them is in a group of islands between Fiji and Tonga where the particular geology of the islands produced these extraordinary tall straight trees, and they were able to build boats 100 feet long. They built real navies. One of the things I didn't say about the traditional craft is they sailed much better than Western craft. So when Westerners first came to the Pacific, they had never seen sailboats that sailed so fast. And when the first Portuguese boat came to what's now Guam, or nearby, they were met by 500 boats. Wow. so you know there was that's to give you some sense of the scale of some of this maritime tradition in Fiji and Tonga they had essentially sail driven battleships that would carry 250 warriors wow how long had this idea been percolating for you? I tend to do projects that are of a large scale and embrace a lot of different disciplines, and I, that's been my pattern throughout my career. Earlier in my career, I was working at the intersection of robotics and art practice, and my projects would take five years or so to realize I worked in virtual reality research in the uh, mid-90s, again, when that was a d- difficult technology to to uh, to work with. so. I spent about a year designing the boat, researching different traditions and different design strategies and and various small number of cases where Western designers had tried to hybridise the islander traditions with Western uh, naval architecture. There's a handful of examples, mostly in France and in some cases in Britain and the UK, and in Australia and New Zealand. There's been quite a lot of research in sort of radical craft. The kind of asymmetrical craft that I'm building, and I guess we should say, what characterises the Micronesian craft is that they've got one big hull and one small hull. So they're asymmetrical, which is most unusual, not something that Western boat builders do. And now when you
0: say asymmetrical, what does that mean?
1: Well, it means you've got one big hull and one small hull. Okay. And as a result, well, there are some complexities to the geometry, but what it means is the outrigger has always got to point where the wind is coming from. What that means is that you can't turn and tack in a way that a traditional western boat would do. When you're heading into wind and you want to go the other direction, you actually have to reverse and the stern becomes the bow and the bow becomes the stern. And that's wow. a technique called shunting. And shunting is awkward, but it's a product of this asymmetry of design which has its own efficiencies.
0: So there are always, uh, g- there's always give and take. And the boat will look like a traditional craft. The main hull will house the sailors, the, the members of the crew, right? And then you'll have that side, smaller hull. Is that for balancing yes. purposes?
1: Yeah, If it wa- see, a Western craft, what's a monohull craft, has a heavy weight on the bottom of the keel, and that's what stops it falling over when the wind pushes the sails. The Micronesian and Pacific boats use a different theory where they have an outrigger that sticks out horizontally so that that becomes a balancing lever arm for the force of the wind. That's why they can be really shallow, maybe only you know a foot or eight inches in the water, uh, which is good because that reduces friction. It reduces weight. But what's different about my design is that I've put the outrigger on the wrong side. So that's a radical change from the traditional Pacific Island boats. And it may be a mistake we'll find out. There are reasons for doing it. There are some historical reasons f- for it being an interesting aspect to research. It's certainly a minority of a minority of a minority of a minority, but it's a, it's an experiment. It's a design experiment. And how do students get involved? You know, how do they find you? Do you find them in the art department? Most of the students I've worked with have been in from the School of Engineering because the multidisciplinary design projects initiative has been better promoted and better advertised in the School of Engineering. Essentially, students find me by word of mouth or previously through advertising through the MDP project. I've had about 60 students working on the project. You know, some work for a quarter, some stay for two or three quarters. They get credit to do the work, academic credit. But sometimes that suits people and sometimes it doesn't.
0: What is the plan now? It looks like you're in the final stages Building, Are you going to be moving? What's the plan?
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately, the the Dean of the School of the Arts has given me notice that he wants the boat removed and he's been very generous in providing space for the boat to be built. Uh, This is my primary research activity. But as a result, I've had to switch gears to some extent and build a trailer so that I can move the boat. And uh, not having any funds... I wasn't obviously able to buy a trailer and the trailer has to be especially customized because the boat is non-standard. You know, you can buy ready-made trailers for outboard, you know, fishing boats, but this thing is quite particular so we're having to build it from the ground up. What happened was I was able to get ownership of a disused trailer that was sitting over on the north campus which hadn't gone anywhere for 12 years or so when I found it, it was 60 feet long and eight feet high. I and my helper James spent some of the summer cutting it up. We've basically cut it down to the very central part, which is the two axles and the, and the suspension that the axles are sitting on. And we're building back up a trailer to suit the orthogonal hulls, and we're building it out of recycled steel from the original trailer, which takes a lot of work because we've got to cut welds and and grind and reuse materials in very careful ways. So it's certainly more difficult than building it out of clean steel stock. We're partly put into that position because of lack of funds, and we're partly uh, and partly it's a, another part of a sort of sustainability initiative. You know, we're recycling what was essentially a pile of scrap metal into what we hope will be a highway-ready 30-foot trailer capable of carrying two tons. That's essentially the task, which I have to complete uh, before Christmas. And uh, that's why, until a few minutes before I came into your studio, I was at an angle grinder in one hand and uh, a dust mask and a pair of ear-protecting earmuffs, And I was lying on my back in the dirt, grinding steel.
0: (laughs) When do you anticipate actually putting the craft in the water? Is that getting closer?
1: Yes. There's one last aspect of the construction of the boat, which is the rudder design system. I designed seven different rudder systems, which I abandoned for different reasons. It's a very difficult mechanical and design problem. I'm now building what I believe to be the best choice and that will be finished by the end of the quarter as well. So the boat will be substantially complete at that point and will be able to be moved. There still will probably be some fittings of a smaller scale to be attached and this and that. I'm hoping to put the boat in the water in... Newport Harbour somewhere, but I have not yet found a host. We need a slip or a, a mooring buoy or a beach to drag it up on, because just to get it off the trailer and into the water assembled will be a couple of hours job every time. And when that would just be not the sort of thing that we'd want to add four hours of work every time we were going to try and go sailing. Mm. So we really need to find a place where we can keep the boat so we can drag it into the water, test it, and of course we'll have to accompany it with an escort boat for safety until we're sure of you know, the way we can handle the boat. Because as I said, it's got unique design aspects. I know how to sail, I'm a sailor, but this boat will not sail like a western boat. I've also sailed islander boats, proas as they're called, and druas, but this boat will behave like neither of them. So it's going to be a voyage of discovery to just find out how to make it work.
0: Mm. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI Professor of Art and Technology, Simon Penny, talking about the 30-foot dual-hull sailboat he has been building with a team of dedicated students. Professor, how did the ancient mariners, when you say that they didn't use maps or instruments, Mm. how did they navigate?
1: Well, that's a subject of intense research and has been a subject of intense research amongst the very few communities who still have a surviving technique. And that research has been going on for 25 years or more, trying to capture the last remnants of what was a very sophisticated kind of technological or scientific system. Firstly, the islanders used a system of star path navigation. So they had their own indigenous celestial navigation system, which took an enormous amount of learning. And it was not like our Western celestial navigation system. It was based on the idea of star paths. They understood that stars rise as the sun does in the east and set in the west and a particular constellation will rise at a certain location on... Well, they didn't have a compass rose, so they had what, what a kind of wind compass idea, right? But clearly where the sun rises in the equinox is a good reference point, and where it sets in the equinox is a good reference point. You're in the tropics, so things don't change that much. So you get these parallel paths of stars which travel from the east to the west, with the North Star being fixed and a reference point with the Southern Cross being fixed. So the way they utilised the stars was with these parallel bands across the sky, and they would know when one star rose, which star or constellation would follow it in that star path. So they could navigate, if the sky even was cloudy and there were just a few small open patches, they would know the star paths and they would know which constellations or stars were in what position on that star path with relation to others. So they could essentially, they essentially had a a mental map of the whole star dome as it changes through the night and would get their bearing from that at night. And the navigators would essentially not sleep. When the sun rose, then there was a slightly different problem because the stars weren't there. One of the things about open ocean sailing is that the swell... Is essentially parallel and unchanging unless there's a storm so you essentially have a kind of moving grid of reference lines that you can take a bearing with respect to so what would happen would be that at sunrise the navigator would look at their path with respect to the stars and then look at the angle of the swell with respect to their path and therefore calculate a bearing to sail with respect to the direction of the swell during the day. That was certainly one of the techniques they used. They had different techniques when they were close to their departure location or their arrival location. Of course, it took years for traditional navigators to become adept, and their systems were localised. They related to the specific 1,000-mile radius zone, which was their territory for sailing, and each community had their own class, their own kind of local knowledge about currents and, and other sorts of weather patterns that they utilised in a complex, richly integrated system. One of the clever things they did was they used seabirds as part of the navigational system. When they're getting close to an island, well, they knew the different species of birds, and the birds would roost on islands and then, and then s- fly out to their feeding grounds. They knew this because they knew their ecosystem, so if they saw a certain kind of bird that they knew roosted on land but fished out at sea, flying in a certain direction at dawn, they would know it was flying away from an island. And at sunset, if they saw birds like that, they would know they were flying to an island. Because on a boat, you know, a boat on sea level, you can only see about 10 miles. The birds have a range of 25 or 30 miles, so it was kind of like a radar. And then there were more, much more sophisticated systems in the Marshall Islands and elsewhere where they could actually read the interference patterns of swells that had passed islands over the horizon, which is really very much like a kind of radar. That's just a superficial summary of some of the key... Techniques, You know, obviously is very, very subtle and very complex. But they knew how to do it and their systems were reliable and repeatable and very much connected with the local weather patterns. So, you know, there were times when they knew they wouldn't go in that direction because there would be storms or the winds would be against them. You know, they would sail at the right times, the right seasons. Actually, I do want to say that a remarkable anthropologist who has worked with a community in the eastern Solomon Islands, her name is Mimi George, and... The community is the Talmako community in Eastern Solomons in the Santa Cruz Islands. She's worked with these people for 25 years to help them save their traditional seafaring traditions. And she's on a uh, West Coast tour right now presenting the film, or the, in fact the second volume of a three-volume film that they've been building about the Solomon Islands seafaring traditions. They have an extraordinary, unusual craft they call it tepuke. And you can find out more about that at their website, which is That's vaka.org. That's V A K org I can share with you information about that, or people can contact me if they'd like to.
0: If they want to contact you, how would they do that? Uh,
1: my university email address is Penny, P E N N
0: Y, like the coin at uci.edu. Fantastic. Professor, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We really appreciate the time you spent with us. We know you're really busy building the boat, but we wish you all the best of luck and look forward to hearing more about this in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I do want to say, if anyone's listening who would like to take part, either in helping build the boat or in sailing it when it's on the water, I'm always interested in interested helpers.
0: Fantastic.